it brings a lot of fulfillment when we add to our lives some level of contribution whether it's locally in your own community or whether it's globally in, in anything else that one's passionate about i believe that's part of our innate nature and if we ignore that i think we end up with a mysterious longing in our life not knowing what it is and i think a lot of times i can be helped by just finding something that we can be of service to our fellow human beings live big give big is the motto of jamie bianchini in 2002 jamie pursued his passion and embarked on a life-changing adventure an eight-year 80-country bicycle trip around the world what started as a quest for adventure connection and unique experiences turned into an opportunity for jamie to give back in communities all around the world get ready for a story which will educate fascinate and inspire you here's a conversation with my friend Jamie Bianchini. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have a very unique episode today with a special guest, Jamie Bianchini. Uh, Jamie was a Cutco rep in the Bay Area back in the early and mid-90s. He became a branch manager, worked with the company for a while while in college at USC, Uh, graduated from USC and was in the business world for a few years, but was anxious for something different, something unique, and was motivated to go on a worldwide adventure, which is going to be a major topic of our conversation today. Jamie went on an eight-year bicycle trip around the world and uh, with, a, with a little bit of a twist to it that we'll, uh, I'm sure, talk about. After getting back from that trip, he became an entrepreneur. Uh, in response to some of the challenges he saw in traveling the world, he founded his own company, which he built to be successful, and it just recently has sold. And so he's an adventurer, he's an entrepreneur, he's a philanthropist, and an all-around great guy. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a really fun conversation for sure. Let's start by talking about how you got started with Cutco. So if you can think back uh, all the way back to those days, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how you got started with the company. I was just looking to... Um, I was always... It was that time I was in college. So I was looking to get you know some experience that would be good for the resume, uh, you know, area of ability to grow uh, and not just take a regular summer job. It's something that would help me grow and stretch. 
And so um, I was really uh, turned on by the product when I, I mean, obviously the pay kind of attracted me in by trying to find something that would pay me well per hour. And, uh, and then when I got in and saw the product, I was really impressed with the product. It was something I knew I could stand behind. And if I believe in something, I can sell the heck out of it. I just love, I, I like sales. And so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I liked Filippo Mancini, my manager at the time, and he was a good guy and, and just really liked the challenge and, and what I was learning and growing. Yeah. Awesome. Can you recall like some key experiences you had in the, those early days and some of the lessons that you feel came out of those experiences? I like the concept of rhino skin, you know, that was part of the training. It seemed like it was like understanding that the no isn't a no to you personally. And this understanding sales as just a numbers game. And that, that was important for me early on is because it's a, it was a lesson I've taken on through everything all through life. Uh, every other project after that, everything from personal to professional all came from that. Just understanding that it's a numbers game. It's, it's a, if you're asking someone to participate in something, when they say no, it doesn't mean that it's a no to you. And that was just, it was really valuable. And so I always, I still use put on the rhino skin with my kids. Now I still use put on the rhino skin myself when I got to go out and get a bunch of stuff done and know that I'm going to get a bunch of no's to do it. I raised $2 million in my company, which we'll get to that later, I'm sure. But it was like, you know, you got to take a lot of no's to get to the yeses. Yeah, for sure. For sure. How about in uh, running a branch office where there are some transformational experiences in, in, in that stage of your, of your time with Cutco? Um, that was all, I a great growing experience there as well. Also, a lot of the numbers game, and, and you know, you're really just doing the same kind of ways and the way of trying to filter through and finding good reps to work with because you know you're going to find people who just don't want to put in the work and don't want to be committed to it. So, uh, I kind of played the same same mentality on that too. Uh, but obviously, uh, yeah, and you know, being able to go out and find an office uh, for very minimal or no rent. That was good office space. And there was just some really creative kind of, uh, some things that took courage, you know, built courage to go out and do things that were unconventional. And, um, and so all those things were just, again, areas that you stretch. And when you stretch yourself out of your comfort zone, you get, you know, you, what you're capable of doing gets bigger every single time. So that was just, again, stretching out, you know, having people working for me that were two, three times my age, things like that were all areas of stretching that were good for me. Yeah. I, I've heard people say that our mind is, is more like plastic than elastic in that, you know, if you stretch something that's elastic, like a rubber band, it, it goes back. But if you stretch something that's plastic, it stays stretched out. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, what happens with people when they experience uh, becoming a Cutco sales rep or in particular becoming a branch manager is they do a lot of things that are outside their comfort zone. And once our mind is stretched. We're capable of so much more in, in many other endeavors that we take on in life. Indeed. What were some of the things about uh, Filippo Mancini that you feel like attracted you or that you he would was, aspire to? I mean, he was, he was just somebody who was just extremely positive and just the energy that he put into it. He was really passionate and he really cared for what I got out of it. He cared for people to stretch and grow. And you could, you could sense that, you know, and that would, what makes a good manager is someone who's, is able to, uh, and really cares about people's growth. Like genuinely cares about people's growth. And that's kind of what I sense out of it. Yeah. We were in the same division at this time, you and I both. And so we both had a chance to learn from Filippo. And I definitely felt I benefited a lot from his positive energy, from his charisma. Uh, his work ethic was also a big deal 
yeah. that I noticed about him that um, kind of gave me a real awareness of, hey, wow, this is what it takes if I want to be a successful at the very highest level. You know, is it mm-hmm. just, it's something extra that not everybody puts in, sure. uh, but I had to be willing to put in. So tell us a little bit about your business ventures and your experiences after Cutco and after uh, college at USC. I mean, I was pretty young and, and still a little bit immature coming out of college. I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder thinking that I graduated from a top school. I won you know, the best one top business plan award from one of the best business schools. I was a bit, had a bit of an ego, to be honest, in, ret- you know, in, in retrospect. And with that, I, I had some great business ideas, uh, some really good ideas, uh, and just jumped all over the place and didn't fall through with things and wasn't really patient. Uh, I was really impulsive and impatient uh, early in my business career as an entrepreneur. Didn't ask for advice and just my work ethic was there. My drive was there, but the key aspects of being patient uh, were not there. So I started everything from Harley Davidson businesses and, you know, importing Harley Davidson's into Switzerland uh, to um, doing some MLM multi-level marketing stuff and then going into being an inventor, which is really one of my big passions, taking products and bringing them through design, manufacturing and, and bringing them out on the market. Had a couple of great products that I just didn't didn't execute properly. Uh, it wasn't wasn't willing to take on capital. Wasn't willing to, to get a good advisor and build an advisory board. And because of that, I ended up racking up a bunch of debt and ended up going bankrupt at 28. So from basically 23 to 28, those five years it was a lot of like hard knocks. You know, learning about what doesn't work <laughs> to the point that I went bankrupt at 28. And are, were these all experiences that you feel like you invested into your latest venture with Ludella that helped you become successful this time? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the average millionaire has gone bankrupt many times, right? It's, it's, you've got to just keep going after it and learning what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, I definitely learned a lot of things that didn't work. And like I mentioned, being patient, asking for help, building an advisory board and being patient. And understanding business takes time. All kinds of business takes time, and you can't rush business. Really, you know, you can go, you can work really hard, but you can't rush what's going to ha- what's going to happen, how the market's going to respond, and what things take. So, those things all, you know, later on, I, you know, when I went into to the to the peace peddlers venture, you know, it was all it was really important to have that there. So, yeah, all those lessons. Cool, cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about the bicycle trip and what made you decide to do this. So uh, let me at least set the frame here that you went on what turned out to be an eight-year, 80-country bicycle trip around the world. It was on a custom tandem bicycle Mm -hmm. where you would invite total strangers to ride on the back of the bike with you for as long as they wanted. And some rode for a few minutes, some rode for a few hours, some rode for a few days, some literally rode for a few weeks with you through their country. Yeah. You had a partner in the early part of the trip, and uh, but then most of the trip was uh, on your own. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about why you decided to do something like this. After the bankruptcy, I had nothing, right? I went bankrupt. I, uh, I had nothing. I had no credit and no money. But I did. I, that wake up was to be authentic to myself and what I really wanted in my life at that time. You know, in my early twenties, I, I I just I really wanted to go and see the world, and I wanted to take the advice of of uh, a lot of people who said, "Go out and see the world when you're young. Uh, go out and live your passions when you're young, because there's plenty of time for kids and mortgages and all those things like that later in life. Go out and do it while your body's strong and why you can do it." 
a lot of people gave me that advice. I didn't listen to it in my early 20s, but towards my later 20s. And I said, I'm going to go and listen to that advice and live my passions and go and do this dream I've had to ride my bike around the world. Uh, what led to taking a tandem bike, a custom tandem bike, was what my friend Garrick, a college buddy, said it'd be nice to be able to share the adventure with people from the countries themselves. So we uh, decided to do tandems and then we decided to make a custom bike that could become a tandem or a single. So the bike could be broken down from a long tandem to a smaller single mountain bike so that we could pick up strangers and make friends uh, in between destinations in faraway lands, but also put it into a single to be able to find the single track because we're both single track mountain. We love mountain biking. So we would kind of got to have our cake and eat it too from intercultural experiences to a lot of adventure. And it was that concept of and calling it Peace Feathers was just really a way at the time we didn't, we didn't have any intention of being like necessarily peacemakers. It was just a cool name that domain was available. And, and, uh, you know, we were going to, you know, we we're going to broker world peace one rider at a time by just inviting strangers to come on, regardless of their religion, background, of their skin color, and just set that example of trusting all people, all humanity, and letting that connection come in the spirit of play. That was really the, the concept of it. And that helped us get a lot of sponsors. We, you know, we got 40 sponsors, brought in about a quarter million dollars in, in in-kind uh, contributions that helped really uh, helped catapult the trip with all the gear we needed. Uh, and then we went out and saved money over the course. You know, we, we, it took us two and a half years. So we set a date in the fall of 1999. We set a date to leave in the spring of 2002. That's two and a half years we gave ourselves. So to like not, not get married, not have girlfriends, start another business and get all like caught up in anything, just focus on getting money in the bank to leave on this trip. And and we did it. Wow. Yeah. And, and you guys started in Japan and then Korea, yeah. right? Went through East Asia, eventually yeah. down to Australia, New Zealand, yeah. then over to Africa, mm -hmm. ultimately Europe. And then South America up to back to home over the, the, the eight years. And your partner left the trip a little way through. He, he had an injury. Is that what happened? Yeah. He, he hit a tree mountain bike riding in Malaysia and was out for about a year healing and then started ended up starting a career uh, in forest service, U.S. government, and went on to start a career with this government, the government. I kept riding. And you kept on riding. Awesome. Awesome. So what countries surprised you the most in terms of like how much you loved it there? I mean, Nepal is still a place in my heart that I'll never forget. I mean, I knew I was going to like it, but I didn't know I would love it that much. Uh, it's just a, just a magical place where people are extremely friendly. The nature is incredible. The adventure sports are incredible. Prices are low. You know, it's a great value. Uh, so it's everything that you'd want in an adventure that I think everybody should go and experience. Nepal and the Himalaya up there and Tibet was also fantastic. Down in Africa, like Mozambique was another area that I didn't know if I'd love Mozambique so much. It's a Portuguese settled and uh, just a gorgeous place uh, to travel. Really nice people, beautiful nature. And, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, Bosnia was an, a place that somehow captured my heart and uh, really liked Bosnia. Overall, uh, there are little nuggets in every part and every, every continent for sure. In South America, I think Paraguay is a place people don't know much about and fell in love with Paraguay. And, and that was, I did that with Christina, who we'll probably talk about in a little bit. So lots of, uh, lots of nuggets out there. You got to just get out there and explore. Yeah. That's so great. I mean, I love traveling and I'm always looking for people's input on, you know, what are the hidden gems that, uh, not everybody gets to. And 
I, I like to keep a list of places I want to visit and try to, you know, check off a new one every year or a new couple ones every year. And, uh, you, you're one of the guys that could, that could really offer so much great insight on some of these places. Let's talk about some of your favorite stories from the trip. Uh, what, what, what stands out first of all, before I ask you about a few. Yeah. Yeah. I think what stands out is kind of just a progression that, that living on the road and being really vulnerable does. I mean, when you're on a bicycle, you're really vulnerable as a, you know, as a, as a human being. And so the first thing that just overall caught my attention is that like total strangers as human beings, total strangers will take care of other human beings. Right. So there, I, I believe we're born with a, what I observed was an innate uh, compassion that human beings have for other human beings in vulnerable positions, right? So when you're on a bike and they see over countless times where people would see or sense that we were in a vulnerable position, whether we're on the wrong road, uh, it's getting late and we're trying to get over a pass and we know that's going to be cold or it might be dangerous in the sense of like Africa going down certain areas, people would come out and, and go out and try to help us, even though they don't know who we are. And that I, I saw that just time after time after time again. And it was, is my, one of my bigger takeaways is that we are compassionate people as human beings. So that, you know, over and over experiencing that coming my direction, I started to get inspired to, to see what I could do to help people that were helping me, you know? And so that we started to do a little bit more charity work and look for areas that we can do things, not necessarily stop writing and start a 501c3 NGO or anything like that, but what could I do while I was writing to be able to do it at the same time? So, um, so yeah, so that was uh, that started a whole series of small, organic, kind of um, grassroots uh, charity projects. We started everything from orphanage to stops to you know delivering malaria medication out to remote villages in in Africa, and starting projects that could help people in the communities that were helping me. So, yeah, I, I can remember, and and just for frame of reference for anyone, if you happen to be. Uh, watching this versus listening. Jamie wrote a book about this adventure. It's called A Bicycle Built for Two Billion. Uh, it's, this is literally one of my favorite books I've read in the last like decade. It's really, really, really awesome. And, um, so one of the stories I can remember was, uh, you were, you went to an orphanage in Nepal mm -hmm. and your mom had sent a box of teddy bears for you yeah. to give out to the kids. And, and I can recall you gave a teddy bear to one little girl. I can't remember exactly how old she was, but I remember what I remember from the book was the little girl asked for a ride on the back of the bike. And, and when you said, yes, you went to take the bear from her and she kind of flinched like, no, I don't want to give the bear up. And yeah. an adult who was there said to you, oh, you know, don't worry. She's just never had a toy. Yeah. And I just like that line stopped me dead in my tracks reading the book to think about this child has never had a toy right and i think about all of the things that we have all the things my kids have my kids have boxes and boxes and boxes of toys and so many things that we have that that sometimes we take for granted that we're not really grateful for necessarily and yeah. um you know here you were experiencing a child who literally never had a toy until you came along a stranger came along and brought toys for the kids in this, in, you know, in this orphanage, in this town. So to me, that was a really compelling moment. That was very early in the book as you traveled through Nepal. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that was a big, 
awakening time, you know, for me too, to see how simple it is to put a smile on someone's face. You know, it's really, it is really simple. Uh, giving people kids rides on the bike was uh, also a quick way to do that for hundreds of smiles that we could deliver just giving people rides and things like that. So uh, that's really, that really, Nepal really kicked off um, what, what continues to this day to be a life where I look to give back whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, in Uganda, you ended up partnering with a young man who truly is transforming his community. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, about Innocent? Yeah. Innocent uh, came on the back of my bike. He had never ridden a bike before. Uh, and so it was his first time even experiencing what it was like to even ride on two wheels, which he was grateful for. Uh, and then uh, I took him on a, on a very, very long and challenging uh, trip on mud and steep hills and uh, grueling terrain. And during the time I interviewed him uh, and asked him if he could do anything in the world and he knew he couldn't fail, what would he do? which I asked a lot of my people on the bike, the same thing mm. said I would build a school for all the AIDS orphans and the needy in my community because a lot of kids are orphaned and they end up in the field. So they never get an opportunity to have an education. I think that's really sad because his parents were able to get him an education, not a great one, but a good education. And I said, are you serious about this? I said, I think about it every day. And I, so I said, well, if you're serious about it, you know, I'll help you. He was like almost crying, you know, thinking that I would have the help and assistance of me. And so I gave him five bucks and said, open up an internet account. And your first assignment is to send me a drawing of what you think the school would look like. So he sent me a, and, and he got an internet account and in less than 24 hours, had sent me a perfectly drawn out drawing with like, you know, using rulers and, you know, actually to scale and all sorts of stuff done by him, but really shows that he was visualizing what he wanted to do. So I didn't know how to create a school, but I, uh, I did know that I promised him I would help him. So I just gave him little baby steps, little by little. I said, okay, now go find land donated from your community. It's community school. We're going to build for all the AIDS orphans. So find land. I'm not going to go out and ask my community for any money to as handouts, go out and find it in your land. So I just gave him steps like that. I said, find land. He went out, found land within a week, donated to him. Then I said, go find building materials donated and went out and found wood and labor and roof tiles. And he just kept following steps until little, little by little, we started building and getting in the community. Community was building. Then we ended up eventually threw a party because he did need some more funds for things that he couldn't get donated. We threw a huge party. He got Panasonic was one of our sponsors to donate a bunch of TVs and stuff to sell at a live event. And all the sponsors chipped in and we sold a bunch of stuff and sent out money to complete the schools and hire their first teachers and get their first students. And now it's got a couple hundred students actively going there every single quarter. And it's almost self-sustaining using the school fees for those who can't afford it to subsidize the, the orphan kids who can't afford it. And so it's very, it's about 30% are orphans or very needy and the rest are full paying students. It's a really neat model that we created and, uh, and it's working. Wow. So this kid from Uganda that sat on the back of your bike decided he wanted to build a school and through your help, he's actually doing it. And it's actually yeah, talk regularly, his community. Talk regularly. We're right now trying to build some new bathrooms because the, their, their poopers all filled up with poop. So we got to dig some new holes and get some new stuff. So we try to, you know, reach out to our community to get a little bit of funds together each time, but they don't reach out very often. They're pretty self-sustaining. It's just when things come that weren't planned in their budget, then it'll, we'll, sometimes we'll have to help and raise, raise a couple hundred bucks here and there. Yeah. 
Wow, that's so cool, man. Yeah. As you're riding through Africa, I, I always wanted to ask you, like, was there a fear of wild animals? And like, how did you handle that uh, in some of the places? Because you were in places where they actually, you actually were in country where there were wild animals around, right? Yeah, I mean, all the dangerous wild animals, those are pretty much caged up uh, in large national parks, large national game parks, grain reserves. Uh, so there could be some elephants out there, some rhinos in certain places, but you just got to stay away from dawn and dusk during those places. That's when they're out and about. Otherwise, they're kind of hiding. Uh, so there was no real wild, wild animal concerns, which is a myth people have, unfortunately. One of many people have about traveling in Africa and a lot of fear. That's really unjust fear. It's a really safe place. Uh, violent crime is, uh, against tourists is almost unheard of in Africa. It's just not a place that happens very often. Uh, as opposed to other places, that does happen more. In our own country, for example, there's a lot of violent crime against tourists. Right. So I didn't have any violence in Africa at all, and worth the whole trip for that matter. I didn't have any fights, any any muggings, any anything violent at all in, in eight years. Yeah. Cool. How about uh, when you ventured into Europe? Tell us uh, tell us something about what you enjoyed in that that part of the trip. Europe, I mean, I was looking forward to Europe the whole time because, I mean, Africa was challenging traveling, right? There's a lot of the same food and, you know, not getting the right nutrition sometimes and just hot conditions and really just, it's a tough, it's tough traveling. It's, it's awesome. It's an adventure, but I was looking forward to Europe as my kind of icing on the cake. But when, unfortunately, what I learned in Europe was there's a lot of fear in Europe. And so when I went to Italy, my first country there, I went there. I'm half Italian, Bianchini, so I had been learning Italian on my bike uh, back in Africa. So I was like, you know, I wasn't great at it, but I could say a few things and put some sentences together, I thought. But, you know, I mean, I went to my first village and I'm like, and I hung out at the little cafe and was just like telling people who I was and showed people the bike. And people just were really scared about because who I was and what my intentions were. And they were, I was like, can I stay at your house? They're like, no. And I'm like a lot of it just no, 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 no. Finally, they sent me to the priest. And then I went to the priest and the priest said no. So I ended up sleeping under a bridge in the rain. I mean, it was raining everywhere else. It was just, it was kind of depressing. First day I was on rocks and <laughs> rocks jabbing into my ribs. And, and uh, so it was, um, wasn't the best start. And what I came to realize, it took me three full days of asking people to come on the bike and nobody joined me in Africa. People jumped on the bike. They fought to get on the backseat of the bike to ride. So this was um, kind of shocking until I finally met a guy named Antonio and he explained to me um, just how much fear they live into because of the media and the media are very prevalent all through Europe, but Italy, especially because they have a, they have a lot of uh, challenges now with folks coming in across the borders and taking advantage of the local people. And everyone locks their doors now and they don't trust anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I had to change the whole way I toured in Europe. I had to let people know in advance I was coming. So they knew who I was. They could research who I was. They could see I wasn't an ex murderer or whatever. They could get time off work because people aren't, you know, people work in Europe. So they had to know I was coming. So I did a lot more press releases up ahead, looking at couch surfing and other ways that I could stay with people ahead of time planned out. Uh, and then that was the way I had to change Europe. But Europe was magical. I mean, it was in 28, 28 uh, countries in 28 weeks of blissful riding. Wow. So you spent half a year, half a year riding through Europe? Yeah. A little over about that. Yeah. Of course, geographically, it's a lot smaller than Mm -hmm. the other places that you went to, because I know you spent a long time in Africa and you spent a long time time in Asia too. So yeah. Yeah. 
tell us about the experience you had with Joe in Belfast. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, Joe, see, Joe was He's a member of the IRA. <laughs> yeah, Joe, uh, that was a good one. Joe was a member well, when he was younger, was a member of the IRA and I met him and I asked him to come, uh, come on the bike. Uh, and they, you know, the Northern Ireland has the, there's the, there's a border there, you know, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that's where all the fighting always was back in the day. And that's all it was about Protestant versus Catholic, you know, and it was just religious madness. Uh, and he had never gone over to the other side of the wall. He had never gone over to that other side because, you know, he was afraid they're going to get killed and so forth. So on the bike, I, I took him on the bike and uh, asked him if he would be willing to go through the border as a, just a symbol of peace. And, and um, he, uh, he did it. He was really scared. And he kind of hid his clover, you know, thing here and put on his glasses and kind of hid himself behind. But he did it and he was scared. You know, it was, he was very nervous and was shaking and, and, uh, but he was uh, happy that he did it. And in the end, ended up crying and said it was really changed his life to go over and, and just face the fears and go over and let the forgiveness go for all the, the pain and death that was, you know, in his life over the years. So, yeah, this was a guy who I, I believe you, you mentioned in the book, you know, he, he had killed people on the other side yeah, during the, yeah. the, the, the troubles as they called it yeah, out was. there. And so was literally afraid for his own life to go over to the other side. And, yeah, I think it would have been recognized for going over there. It wouldn't have been a good thing. Um, yeah. Anymore, but he knew he wanted the, the future generations to not continue down that path, right? So Yeah. And you asked him, like, when's the last time you were on the other side? And he said, like, 1969 or something. Long time ago, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this was something around 2005 or six or seven at this point, probably. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that, uh, that, I thought that was a cool story. I, I really enjoyed reading about that part and just some of the lessons that came out of that. So then, uh, South America, tell us about South America. South America was amazing as well. I, uh, I stopped in Brazil and wanted to learn Brazilian Portuguese. So I lived in Brazil for about three months and surfing and learning Brazilian Portuguese and began writing the book that I, uh, about now began that process a little bit. And then uh, I ended up meeting my wife, uh, who's now my wife. I didn't know she was like then. She came on the bike for a 15-kilometer ride and ended up staying on for 20 days. She got her own bike. Uh, we met in Argentina. We crossed the border into um, Paraguay. We rode for about 19 days in Paraguay together. One of the best 19 days of my life. Just really awesome people and great adventures. And, and with a woman who was really adventurous and kind of got, like, got the spirit of peace peddlers in every way, got the spirit of connection and, and, uh, and contribution and meeting people. And, and uh, so we shared that passion. And uh, so, you know, South America is amazing. Um, definitely, you know, there's pe people say there's more risk in South and Central America in the way of like crime and things like that. I did, again, did have any issues with it uh i listened to the locals locals told me where it was safe and not safe to ride so i didn't have any problems there christina came and got her own bike and rode with me from chile uh all the way up to colombia in ecuador we made our first baby together and we found out we were pregnant in colombia so i was an adventure so the whole trip was uh incredible um but it was re really special having a woman uh with me for the first time that was actually coming along so uh and then central america was you know again just a, a brilliant time. I was surfing a lot and enjoying the trip and I knew I was going to be a father soon. So it was 
last hurrah as a non-father and uh, that my son was born right after I finished Central America. Luca was born in Spain. And then uh, I went and de- finished the, the uh, west coast of North America from, you know, from, uh, from Canada down to Bay Area until uh, Christina and Luca, who was now three months at the time, joined the tour. And we toured down the coast to San Diego to finish the tour. Awesome. And, and Luca was born in Spain because Christina mm-hmm. is Spanish, yep. born and raised in Spain. So went home bar- bar- somewhere near Barcelona. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Cool. Wow, well, what a uh, crazy adventure yeah, that sure. was. Yeah. Well, what did like as you look back and you and you dis- dissect uh, you know the main lessons that came out of it uh what what stands out to you that would summarize what you got um, out of the trip? I mean, creating the trip in general and having it be as successful as it was, I mean, what stands to me is like living in the pa- living passions, right? Like that, like Peace Brothers was everything I'm passionate about. It was adventure, it was travel, it was connection, it was contribution and creativity and all the things that I'm good at and enjoy uh, were represented. And because of that, I was able to manifest just a lot of great things, you know, from support to safety and all things and connections and friendships. So there's something to be said about, you know, do what you love and the money will follow and do what you love first. I think that's what something I took out of it. But, you know, on the whole tour also, you know, uh, live big, give big was one of the mottos I have, you know, and I still believe that I take that into my future career now as well of that it is possible to live your personal dreams, your professional dreams, your financial dreams, and also make a contribution to your community, right? Mm-hmm. And not so just me, me, me focus, like where can we do both? Right. And so I, I take that into all of my other businesses, really, and, and other parts of my life and successfully kind of put that in there, that philosophy. Yeah. It's possible to, to do them both. Yeah. Th- there's a, a, a worldwide entrepreneur and philanthropist that I know who says travel is the fatal enemy of prejudice. Yeah. Yep. And definitely got, got the sense that one of the things that uh, you learned in traveling around the world is that uh, we're all people. Yeah. Right? And we all have a lot of the same aspirations and desires. And uh, you, you really develop an appreciation and love for different types of people through something like this. For sure. That's a, a really good point. I mean, just realize that we're all, we're all human beings. We're all, the, you know, we're all in this together. And so, and that if I was, if I really had a problem out there anywhere in the world, somebody would come to take care of me, you know, and that's, that's really our innate compassion that I was, I, I alluded to yes earlier in the, in the talk. And so that's why I think it is our responsibility and it's, it will make, it brings a lot of fulfillment when we add to our lives, some level of contribution, you know, yeah. part of mixed blended in. Uh, whether it's locally in your own community or whether it's globally and in, in anything else that one's passionate about, I believe that's part of our innate nature. And if we, if we ignore that, I think we end up with a longing and a, a, a mysterious longing in our life, not knowing what it is. And I think a lot of times that can be helped by just, uh, you know, finding something that we can be of service to our fellow human beings. Yeah, that was profound what you just said right there about that mysterious longing that people might feel if they aren't contributing, if they aren't adding value, if they aren't giving to others. So there's so much that comes yeah. from that that uh, makes us feel personally fulfilled. So tell us about your business venture with Ludella. Just ha- how you how did you decide on the name, and how did you decide on the idea for uh, developing what you did with with Ludella? 
Uh, well, I was traveling in Africa. I was involved in a candle fire. So um, in Burkina Faso and in many, many underserved communities out in, in Africa where there's no electricity, they use candles and gas, oil lamps and so forth for power. At least they did at that time for light. And so I fell asleep with a candle burning and had a candle fire in my room. Uh, it was really scary. I put it out, but it was scary and could have could have caused me and others harm. And then I invented, you know, I have a big inventor mind, it really never stops. And so I invented this product that would be a safer way to enjoy real flame candlelight. Um, but that, and I invented that in about 2006 or so. And then by the time I had a couple of children and had, had, a, had a corporate job for a little bit too long, I decided it was time to put on my entrepreneurial cap again and uh, start, you know, started the company and said, but because I invented the product in Africa and uh, realized that another problem I found in Africa was that um, the illiteracy rates are absurd there. And we started the school in AIDS orphan for AIDS orphans, but there's a lot of other people just don't have access to books to, to become literate. Without literacy, you're not really going to go very far. So we decided to make Ludella a public benefit corporation, a B Corp, and donate books for every candle product sold to illuminate minds, not just illuminate homes, but illuminate minds of children. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we really became a social impact. So again, that same live big, give big of the ride became uh, better light, better lives for the motto of, of Ludella. So basically the product in essence was real flame candle that can be turned on and off with the remote control, but also has multiple safety features that reduce fire risk uh, and while letting people enjoy the benefits of real flame candles. And so it, it was, it was a hard, I mean, people said startups are hard, but this was my first true venture startup, you know, went out to raise $700,000 seed round and was able to successfully do that. And that's a lot of Cutco uh, rhino skin stuff there because that's raising money is very hard. And so, but I was able to go out and close a $700,000 round, make some progress, go out and raise additional money, make some progress until we finally shipped the product in 2018. And 2019 this year has been our first full year in business. It's been extremely difficult in every way. It's a very hard uh, kind of business, very uh, capital intensive inventory and, and uh, a lot of more product development tools. And, and so it's a, it's a pro I knew I was going to continue to fund, need to fundraise and fundraise and fundraise. And, and uh, it, was it was unfortunately eating up my uh, time with my family a lot. Uh, and I wasn't enjoying life. I was enjoying my passions of biking and surfing and skiing and all things. I was working way too much. And, uh, so I had a long conversation with my family, uh, about whether or not we would consider selling the company earlier than we had planned, right? Not a big, huge, fancy Silicon Valley exit in any way, but a way that we can, you know, make whole our investors and, uh, and walk away with a better lifestyle. Uh, and get all the financial means needed to move forward. So was very blessed to find a, a company that's very large, multinational, very well funded, and with international distribution, manufacturing, all the things you need, you know, finance, manufacturing, team, distribution, all those things you need. And that were good people that ag agreed with the, the mission as well and wanted the mission to keep on and wanted to hire me on as a more visionary role, giving me more time uh, with my family uh, and a, a comfortable role uh, that um, I, I do, I work in my superpower and not in out of my superpower. And mm. so staying on the, the high end creative visionary role and out of the executional, operational, HR, finance, fundraising, all those things, which are just really grindy. Right. So right. it's to 
pull that off just uh, last month and I'm very grateful. Now I have uh, more time and more resources to be with my family and do what I love. Yeah, great. So you're able to sell the company and remain as a partner uh, in the new venture, Mm -hmm. uh, but focus more in the areas that, as you said, are are part of your superpowers and your strengths and doing what you do best, uh, you know, while having the opportunity for a great lifestyle with your family. That's what it's about right now. That's cool. How'd you name the company? Ludella. Uh, yeah, I named it after my two kids. Uh, yeah, Luca is uh, the the first one's my my oldest son. His name means the the bringer of light, and then Candela is my daughter, uh, and that's the flame of a candle. So that was really became the vision of the of the company. You know, is to use uh, man humankind's innate uh, attraction to fire as a vehicle to illuminate minds. And to, to bring the light to, to, to communities. So we've built four libraries so far. We plan to build another four this in 2020. And every year, you know, to hopefully increase that and scale the impact as we scale the company up. Yeah, cool. And, and if you were to give advice to young entrepreneurs who are trying to start companies and succeed, like what are two or three of the key things that you feel like were important? I would say definitely try to do something that is in your superpower. You know, there, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. And I, what I've done multiple times to a fault is look for ones that are better business opportunities than they are necessarily a representation of who I am and the contribution I want to make in the world and something I'm going to be truly enjoy doing on it. Cause a business is a long term, it's a long, it's a long haul. It's like a marathon and then some. And so if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it makes that marathon extremely grueling to finish. If you do enjoy what you're doing, then. It, I think you'll have a higher likelihood of succeeding in the long haul in it. And so, you know, that would be probably one of the first things. Second thing I think is just be humble and ask for help, you know, and build, build a good advisor team, find people who've already done it and, uh, and build that team first and foremost, um, and make sure that, you know, you've got some good people on your team before you go out and really start building just so you can avoid the mistakes. You're going to, you're going to make mistakes no matter what, but you know, can, you can definitely trim those mistakes down, having a good group of advisors and board and so forth to kind of keep the guardrails on those kinds of major failures that could happen. And the patience thing, I mean, is, a, is, a, is obviously a good one, you know, being, being able to just be patient and understand that it's, it's a long haul business that you're in and, and uh, you can't really rush it. You know, it could take three, five years in the low end just to get things off the ground and then another five plus years to get things to the point that they're in the right place. Very rarely does it work much faster than that in the true reality of things. Right. Cool. Well, that's some good input, especially uh, talking about doing things that sort of jive with who you are. As I think about my own life and why I've stayed with Cutco for 31 Mm. years, I just feel like who I am is somebody who enjoys impacting people, who enjoys sharing knowledge and teaching. And, um, you know, as a Cutco manager, I've had a chance to be a teacher of young people for so many years in so many ways. And, and it's something I've been able to enjoy doing and that, that has helped, helped me to thrive is that I've been doing something that I, I really love doing. So I, I definitely see the value for that there, Jamie. So, you know, as you uh, look into the future, you know, five, 10 years down the road, what are, what are you most excited about? I have just started my own coaching and consulting practice and speaking, coaching, consulting, and I just put a website up and jamiebianchini.com and just want to get out there and help people. I think a lot of people just need someone to help them see 
that's one of my superpowers is the ability to see a very, very big dream and instantly break it up in my mind and eventually on paper into very digestible chunks and milestones so that somebody working with a leader who sees they want to do something big and wants someone to hold them accountable and make sure that they're going on the right things, that I can help other leaders um, with the same level of impact that you feel, you know, and, and, and help uh, a level of coaching on that side, but also consulting and actually real business sides of things, you know, so some combination of consulting and coaching going forward. And I want to get back into speaking and giving talks and things like that and just getting out in the world and spreading the positive, some positivity out there. And I think that uh, that's kind of where I think my superpower lies is, is um, on the higher level, visionary advisor, coach, board member, that kind of area where I can make a higher level impact versus continuing to start new businesses and do all the work in them. That I think it'd be more beneficial for, for me to help other people in regular meetings. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jamie, I, I love your story. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much uh, that's cool about what you've experienced, not just on the trip, but before the trip and some of the mm-hmm. ups and downs and challenges that you went through after the trip and you know starting a company and being able to build that. There's so many things that uh, many people can can relate to. And um, and then, of course, like the, the actual trip itself, like having heard you describe it and having heard you speak about it and the lessons you've learned and having read your book, it was, uh, was really transformational for me to read your book. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just really glad that we can share your story here with the Vector audience today. And if people want to find you, jamiebianchini.com. Yeah, that's it's now obviously uh, live. It's uh, in progress. It's, uh, I hope you don't edit this thing too soon. It needs, still needs a little polish, but... Uh, <laughs> But that will be up and running uh, hopefully by next week. And got a couple clients that are already starting to get on board. So I have limited time because I am still working with the other company. So I only can take on you know a couple clients at a time right now. Um, but that's where I want to start guiding my ship to have the, the most impact. Also giving me the best kind of freedom and lifestyle to be able to to go about what I going where I like to roam because my traveling bug still keeps uh keeps on on reminding me that there's other places I still want to go. <laughs> yeah. Well hey, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you here and I think people will enjoy hearing your story. For sure. All right. Talk to you soon. See you buddy. That was my friend Jamie Bianchini. We were young Cutco reps and managers together way back in the early 1990s out here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, where Jamie learned about the rhino skin in taking on a sales position and the courage to do things that make you uncomfortable at times, or that were a little uncomfortable at times. Of course, those are powerful early lessons. Uh, He experienced a lot of hard knocks in business after graduating from college, and I think a lot of people can relate to that uh, idea that uh, success doesn't always come easy for us in any of the things that we want to do. And there, there tend to be obstacles we have to overcome. Of course, the amazing trip around the world, eight years, 80 countries, uh, from 2002 to 2010, Jamie was venturing around the world, learning about openness, learning about hospitality, learning about trust, about compassion, love and respect for all other people. So many cool lessons that came out of that. Uh, He would ask people on the bike, if you knew you couldn't fail, uh, what would you pursue? And that's an awesome question for you to think about today and to consider his lesson from business about doing the things that jive with your skills, 
the things that jive with who you are as an individual. I feel like for those of you who are a part of Cutco and Vector Marketing, that uh, we offer an opportunity for that in our management opportunity for those people who want to be of service to others and want to help other people and want to be a sort of teacher uh, that we offer a chance to pursue something that jives with who we are, uses the skills that we already have in ways that contribute and in ways that uh, provide a lucrative opportunity with the important focus there being on the contribution aspect. Is what you're doing contributing to others, contributing to the world so you don't have that mysterious longing that Jamie talked about where fulfillment is missing because you're not contributing to others? The book that he wrote about his trip is called A Bicycle Built for Two Billion. It is awesome. Couldn't recommend it more. Go out and get that thing. Check it out. There's lots of great stories. You can read it a bit at a time, you know, one country at a time if you want, uh, and enjoy the book for a long time to come. Thanks, everyone. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.